Welcome to Green Tea, Sustainable Stories from Bowdoin Campus and Beyond, a production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez, telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. In season two, we are exceptionally excited to continue our conversations this spring semester with our guests, talking about their connection to environmental education, the nexus of spirituality and environmentalism, and promoting green habits. Episodes will be posted on the Bowdoin Sustainability website following their airing on WBOR. Find all of Season 1 and Season 2 each Friday at www.bowdoin.edu slash sustainability slash green dash dash podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're speaking with Kate Cole, class of 2020, a chemistry student at Bowdoin College, about promoting environmentally conscious habits in science labs and their place in a sustainable future more broadly. Kate is working to limit the heavy use of plastics, energy, and the consistent waste of chemicals in her chemistry lab here at Bowdoin. Kate, welcome to Green Tea. Could you tell us about your research at Bowdoin in layman's terms? In a slightly less jargony way, I'm looking at designing a catalyst to add a trifluoromethyl group to um, potential pharmaceutical compounds. And so this trifluoromethyl group increases the bioavailability of the drugs and can increase the specificity. So looking at making drugs more effective and efficient and the hopeful environmental side effect of that would be if you can take a lower dosage of a drug, then they have to produce less of it. So it would Mm -hmm. use fewer raw materials. So like Mm -hmm. the trifluoromethyl group, is that like what's easily like bio accessible? Like is that... So group help? Yeah, so that actually is really bio-inaccessible. A carbon-fluorine bond is really hard to break, but when you add something that is hard to break down in a biological system, it makes the whole molecule more stable. So the example that we usually talk about is the difference between sertraline, which is a generic antidepressant, and Prozac. And sertraline contains chlorine and Prozac contains fluorine. Prozac is about 80% bioavailable. So when you take Prozac, 80% of it actually works Hmm. inside your body. When you take sertraline, only about 40% of it works. Hmm. So when you add bonds that the body doesn't know how to break down, it makes drugs much more stable. And that's a new, it's a relatively new motif, but pharmaceutical companies are looking more and more to use it. So it can really increase the, the efficiency and specificity of a drug. Huh, that's so cool. Honestly, yeah. I don't think I ever asked you like specifically about this. So oh. Yeah, yeah. It's really jargony at first, but when you break it down, it's not quite so scary. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Um, so in this conversation, we want to we talk specifically to waste and um, sort of your work with the sustainability office and thoughts about like greening uh, labs, specifically chemistry. So could you talk about the waste that's produced in your lab, like generally what kinds and like the process for, for disposal? Yeah. So I feel like our lab is fairly typical for a synthetic research lab. One of the largest volumes of waste that we generate is gloves. And that's kind of a non-negotiable in a lot of chemistry labs. As much as we try to maybe take our gloves off and reuse them, um, we, for instance, work with something called dimethylformamide, and that goes through nitrile gloves in about 30 seconds and is really dangerous. So we try really hard to be cognizant about changing our gloves, but that means that we do generate a pretty large volume, um, which is something that we think about, but there hasn't really been an alternative that's been come up with for that. Um, We also generate a lot of pipette tips, 
So again, that's super common across most sciences. You can't really reuse them. And so in a synthesis, it's not atypical for us to go through over 50 pipette tips. And those go straight into the trash. Um, A lot of glass waste, so like pasture pipettes and disposable vials. But I feel like we, we mostly generate that kind of typical, you know, the standard of like gloves and pipettes are big big sources of waste for us mm-hmm. interesting yeah so it seems like in a learning environment you you sort of have to follow like the protocols and in, in order to learn how to become more efficient at it it seems like an educational environment is sort of difficult for um being especially environmentally conscious or like changing the <coughs> structures around that sort of thing Right. So I did talk with um, Denny Tesfigaber, who's the he's the lab instructor for both um, intro and inorganic, and we looked for a long time at the procedures for the intro labs, and really they don't work with anything toxic. You could work with most of those things on a benchtop without gloves and be fine, but the idea in an intro lab is to establish best practices. So at other institutions where they don't use gloves or hoods for the intro labs, then when they get into organic chemistry, where it's more important that you're not exposed to the chemicals, students have no idea how to use them and end up creating more dangerous lab environments. So the waste that we do generate in intro is designed to hopefully mitigate any chemical exposure risks as students Mm -hmm. progress. But Denny has done a really good job of looking at how to use, you know, the same pipette for the same solution for a whole lab, which minimizes the pipette usage by, like, every student and things like that. But in a research lab, that's where we start to see the somewhat more dangerous chemicals and things where people have to be more cognizant of their exposure versus in teaching labs where most of the things are relatively benign. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. What about the like chemical waste that you're producing? Like you said that your lab doesn't produce like, <coughs> a ton of particularly harmful um, compounds, but like, is that a significant issue as well, or you just feel like the volume of like more basic <laughs> stuff is probably the place to start with? Yeah. So it's all relative, I guess. Like Bowdoin is a really small campus, and so we only have you know five or six active chemical labs that are really generating a significant amount of haz waste but for us a significant amount of haz waste is really small compared to like a big institution Mm -hmm. um in our lab in particular we tend to generate less than maybe four liters a month of like haz waste so we start a four four liter collection and then just take it out when it's full but where we really generate a lot of our hazardous waste and that doesn't go into that container would be through our HPLC so that's a high performance liquid chromatography instrument and that's how we purify and analyze a lot of our compounds and that continuously pumps solvent when you're running a sample so we could go through liters and liters of solvent overnight Um, and that's where we think about volume but those things are relatively less toxic Hmm. Um, so I'd say overall, like the environmental impact that hazardous waste at Bowdoin has is a lot less compared to most R1 institutions, but that's just based on volume. Um, it's also really dependent on the lab and what they're working with. And so for us, we do generate some stuff that is um, fairly toxic, but nothing that really requires any special disposal procedures. Mm-hmm. Whereas some labs, um, like whenever the EOS labs have to use HCL, that's where people get really sensitive about disposal and being really careful with how they work with it because that's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, So 
it's all very relative, and that's something that um, I think a lot of people think about, but also at small institutions, it's a drop in the bucket versus, you know, pharmaceutical companies that are making things in huge VAT reactors mm, on, yeah. like, the ton scale. That's where you see an... In- that's where you see the push to minimize waste because it's very cost effective. And I think that's the saving grace of chemistry is that most things that you're throwing away are very expensive. So (laughs) professors don't want to waste their grant money. And if, for instance, we wasted a bunch of isopropanol that is really high purification, my PI would be upset about that. And that's where people that are scaling up reactions start looking at, okay, you know, we have... A 98% yield, that's great, but like that 2%, could that be better? Or could we use a cheaper solvent? Um, And cheaper solvents tend to be less environmentally um, dangerous. Like water is the greenest solvent. And so if you can run anything in water, you always do. Um, So I think there is, in a way that there's not with a lot of consumerism, there is a big financial check for people to be as efficient as possible. Hmm. But in a well-funded lab at a small college, there's not quite as much of a push to be really conservative with things like solvent use. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even like think about a lot of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. But I feel like if you, yes, it's in a small lab, but it's also like, I feel like there's a lot of, especially if you're like educating people who eventually will go into the pharmaceutical industry or like if you multiply, there are many, I mean, not that many, but there are, there's like a good number of small colleges. And I guess when you're scaling up, it does start to matter, but yeah, it's all relative, I guess. Right. And I think it's all relative in the way that, um, I think about personal actions and implications as someone who thinks deeply about how like my, for example, like consumerist, like consumerist tendencies affect the planet and other people. I then go into lab and throw away a bunch of plastic like there's an intrinsic yeah. <laughs> you know discrepancy there yeah. um and looking at going on in research and you know the hazways that i will generate in the future and the things that i will throw away and the you know glass waste that i will produce yeah. like thinking about ends and means gets a little complicated yeah you know like yeah. how my career path is probably not in line with my environmental principles and that's a thing that I know that a lot of professors struggle with mm-hmm. but are there like no alternatives to like plastic gloves like I'm I'm, I, I'm thinking of like bio-based sort of like plastic packaging and I'm wondering if if the issue with that is that they're like easily broken down yeah, or like, or, like they're yeah or something. Yeah, so I don't I don't know. I've looked into this and the most kind of environmental glove solution that I was able to find are take back programs where they recycle nitrile gloves and turn them into like park benches mm-hmm. and things which the gloves can't have been used with super toxic chemicals. <laughs> um, you have to buy them from a specific brand. You have to collect them and you have to ship them back. One of the big limitations with gloves, similarly to plastic bags, is like they're so light that you have to collect a huge volume to make it worth it. Mm-hmm. And that requires someone at a lab or institution to be inspired enough to do that, <laughs> which I think a lot of places lack. Um, I know that Tufts does that. But um, just and just thinking about like the qualities of a more biodegradable and eco-friendly polymer 
the challenge with those and the reason that they haven't taken off is that they tend to have different properties than we expect for some, from something like polypropylene or nitrile or polyethylene, which is what we think of when we think of plastic. Um, and so thinking about, I was talking to a professor who works with something called polylactic acid, which is what they use to make the um, degradable uh, stitches, like when you get your wisdom teeth out, mm-hmm. which is cool because you know that they're safe. They know that they break down into really specific chemicals, and they're relatively environmentally benign compared to polypropylene. Um, They're they're also what makes sun chip bags really crunchy, like the compostable bags. (laughs) have, like, totally different... Right, this is the comparison of, like, a a sun chip bag has totally different properties to any other brand of chips, and people don't like them because they're loud and they're crunchy, and that's because that polymer is more brittle. And so... Mm. Thinking about how the qualities that we like in a typical glove translate into or kind of get lost in the shuffle of making a more environmentally friendly polymer, Mm -hmm. people haven't translated that into a glove yet. Yeah, Yeah. I guess you could also translate that even further into like the, the waste that's being produced and the ease of like breaking down that waste eventually. Like I'm assuming that gloves with um, like less brittle plastic or like that are more durable also like take a longer time to break down in a landfill or like wherever else um, it ends up. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think a lot of labs you just end up in this like rock and a hard place of, okay, if we aren't constantly using fresh gloves or if we're using gloves that compromise our safety, we're not going to do the research or people are going to get sick or people are going to have whatever other negative consequences of Mm -hmm. chemical exposure that could happen. So there's not really as much of an alternative as maybe people who are like, oh, I will buy a bamboo toothbrush instead of like a plastic (laughs) one. Like, that's awesome. Do that. But like thinking about um, there's no like equivalent for gloves or for pipette tips. Mm-hmm. And then you also have to think about how chemicals interact with them. Mm-hmm. Like there are some things that you can or cannot store in plastic or glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so that makes it really challenging. Yeah. yeah. Pers- on, on like a personal level, how do you reconcile the like environmental impact and, and the idea that you're like progressing science? So at the moment, this is something I think about all the time, especially um, our syntheses when we're making a new catalyst take a long time, like seven or so active hours in a hood, constantly pipetting, throwing away gloves, generating hazardous waste. And it gives you a lot of time to think (laughs) and really makes me question, um, you know, the value of my work. And um, I had a long conversation with Professor Vasudevan, who's our environmental chemist, and she also has this debate, you know, of like, she's an environmental chemist, but ultimately her lab is still incredibly unsustainable and, you know, like, does understanding the soil sorption um, really affect people's understanding of environmentalism? And my research right now is, in to- is totally independent of any environmental applications. And that was something that I, so I've known for a long time that I've wanted to be a chemist and trying to reconcile my environmentalism with my career aspirations has meant that when I'm looking at graduate schools, trying to think about labs that do have environmental, at least tangentially environmental applications, but even still like 
I guess my my reconciliation is trying to live as low an impact life outside of lab and be realistic with myself to know that what I'm doing is really detrimental to the environment and also trying to educate other scientists because people have people who are in labs tend to have this sort of very narrow focal length and then not think about how their research affects the planet outside of like how can I publish this paper or like what is the background information I need to write about like so yeah it's something that I think about a lot and I don't know that I really have a way to do that mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like I have to just like take off my invent- environmentalist cap the second <laughs> that I like put on my goggles and walk into lab <laughs> like two personalities but yeah. Yeah. yeah that's tough yeah it seems like you point to education as as being pretty important in in this entire conversation and like starting at an undergraduate institution it seems like founding the <coughs> the like educational uh like infrastructure for people you know, trying to retain some semblance of a like their environmental cap while they're doing their chemistry seems pretty important. Like looking forward, if they end up being a chemist at some pharmaceutical company or something like that, where they have a larger like impact potentially. The Bowdoin Chemistry Department hosts talks by visiting professors from other institutions every Friday. Here, Kate discusses a visit by Princeton professor Paul Chirik, who studies organometallic chemistry and catalysis. The talk took a turn towards a larger conversation around sustainability to the surprise of many students. Instead of doing a talk on actually his research, which is really interesting and has a lot of environmental ramifications, looking at using different heavy elements for catalysis rather than the ones that are currently in use, he just got up and went on this like 45-minute rant about sustainable element usage. He's like, do you know how many elements the average American uses in a week? And we have no idea. (laughs) It's like 80 to 90 or something, which there are about 110 elements. So if you think about that, that is really scary. Really scary. And it's things like phones and like smoke detectors use americium. And like, Mm. there are all of these really random elements that genes are made using ruthenium. Um, that you just don't think about, and those elements are really toxic um, and dangerous. But he just went off about like life cycle analysis and all of these things that I think about all the time as like someone <laughs> who thinks about the environment a lot. Like when I buy a product, like what, how did it get to my like cart, how, and then how did like what's going to happen to it after I'm done with it? And all of these other chemistry students walked out of that talk shaken to their core. <laughs> Whereas I walked out and I was like. Yeah, you know, like, that is how I live my life. (laughs) And that is the fear and the dread with which I proceed throughout my day. And the other people were like, I had never considered what happens to a product after I use it. (laughs) And to me, that was flooring. But I'm so glad. I mean, his talk talk would have been really cool. His research is fascinating. Um, But I was so glad for the other people's sake that he just had that platform and to an extent, abused it. Like, that was not why Bowden paid for him to come here to give a talk. But, and I think a lot of the professors were very disappointed. But it was great to see that kind of level of impact that a talk can have and to have someone in a position of authority. He's a pretty well-known chemist in his community. He's from Princeton. And to see him just, like, shake that into people and then 
you know, it's a Friday afternoon. We spent the whole rest of the day just with them spiraling <laughs> and me talking about how I've spent, you know, pretty much my whole life thinking about these questions, which was just really interesting. And yeah. I don't think that the chemistry department as a whole has a really strong environmental culture. Um, but I don't think that people are necessarily like, they're not people who are like climate deniers right. who are really mm-hmm. like anti-environment, but they're just not people who have chosen to prioritize that in their life as much as some other people have. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons that trying to green a chemistry lab feels like shouting into the void and then <laughs> <laughs> running into a wall because there's really only so much you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about what you can do. I mean, to like, I know there's only so much that you can do, but like, are there particular best practices or like things that you're trying to sort of implement that have been successful or like some other labs have had success with? Yeah, so a lot of the um, most successful environmental chemistry campaigns happen at much larger institutions. So from the research that I did during the fall, I found a lot of big, you know, R1 universities. R1? R1 is, for... it's like Division One, but for research. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, the big guns. Right, like those are, those are the big nerd athletes. Is, um, is Bowdoin... R is what's considered to be a PUI. So it's you. It's typically either an R1 or a PUI. And so okay. PUI stands for Primarily Undergraduate Institution. Okay. Um, when I'm visiting larger institutions, I, like, I don't go to a PUI. I just go to a UI. <laughs> <laughs> My lab is two people. Um, but an R1, those are, those are places that have hundreds of graduate students, Got thousands you. of graduate students. And those are the ones that are really... Um, driving a lot of the research because um, that is their focus. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But at, so at these larger institutions, um, a lot of the fume hoods are um, sensitive to whether or not the, the doors are open, like if the sash is up. And so they pull a larger volume, which fume hoods are an incredible energy drain and have to be on all the time. And so at Bowdoin, we have what are called constant volume fume hoods which means that it doesn't matter how high the sash is, it's always going to pull the same volume at this, or, yeah, pull the same volume of air at the same rate. So it doesn't matter at Bowdoin whether our sash, sashes are open or closed. And so that's something that is something that makes a big difference. And I don't have the statistics, but people see a significant drop in their energy costs when people really effectively shut the sash. And that's something that people do is like competitions and can be really effective. Um, Another thing that doesn't really apply to Bowdoin, just because of our size, is raising the temperature of low temp freezers. So a lot of biology labs require samples to be stored at specific temperatures. And I think it's about 20 degrees Celsius colder than it actually needs to be. So you can just increase the temperature of your fridge and that will significantly decrease how much energy you're pulling mm-hmm. via your fridges, which yeah. is another big one. At Bowdoin, I haven't really been able to implement anything. Um, all of these practices and things are really applicable to much larger scales. It's also highly infrastructure dependent. Um, so that's why when they were building Rue, looking at different types of fume hoods so that they use less volume and they have ductless fume hoods, which um, 
as a chemist seem kind of silly because they just recycle the air um, versus actually spewing it out. And um, so our, a lot of our research could not be conducted in those fume hoods because they result in a much lower um, volume of air being pulled. So the chance of exposure is higher. But if you're not really working with anything that's volatile or that dangerous, it's really fine for that purpose. And so a lot of the geology labs, that's an acceptable standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but no chemistry research, for the most part, could be conducted in those hoods. Gotcha. Yeah. Hmm. So at Bowdoin, it's one of those, like, it's also so dependent on the lab where, like, I can use, for example, like, one thing that I will do, so our, we're making polymers, which means that we do two steps in sequence over and over again for a while, and so it means that we're pulling from three solutions, and so instead of using a fresh pipette tip every time I pipette a new solution, which is how we were instructed to do it, I can use a plastic syringe over and over again, or keep the same pipette tip. And so instead of using um, like 70 or 80 pipette tips, I'll use four. So you'll just like re-pull using the same. Yeah, so I'll keep the pipette in a clean beaker next to the solution, like the label the beaker, and then you can just um, use that same tip. Again, it's a drop in the bucket, Uh but I've saved hundreds of pipette tips, and I like to think that that makes a difference. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's all so dependent on what you do because each lab has such different techniques and requirements that it's hard to say like, okay, every time you make a polymer, Mm -hmm. because we're the only lab that makes polymers. So it's very challenging and is a really daunting task to actually get people to decrease their usage. Hmm. Yeah. Going back to like energy, um, I feel like the general idea is that a lot of chemistry or just like science labs in general are really energy intensive um, because they have a lot of like energy intensive equipment can you talk a little bit more about like what that entails and like maybe some of the consequences yeah so this is something we've been thinking about a lot as the power keeps going out Drek has had a faulty breaker for the last couple weeks Hmm. which means that every now and then the power goes out and that has a lot of implications right so a lot of the stuff is on a backup generator because it cannot go out things like freezers things like um the cooling and venting systems for animals. Like we have a huge vivarium full of lobsters and zebrafish and crabs. And if the power goes out there, then their water is not aspirated and it gets way too warm and they die, which happened during the power outage oh. in mm. our software year. So they've totally redone a lot of Drux wiring to the generator because we realized how catastrophic those losses can be. But on a more day-to-day level, the fume hoods and research labs are on all the time. We store solutions in there, and generally it's really dangerous to turn them off. And then things like, at least in our lab, so we have two of those HPLCs, the liquid chromatography instruments that I was talking about, and one of them is hooked up to a mass spec. And our mass spec only does, so you set up runs and you can set them up overnight because it takes like 10 hours to run all of your samples. And obviously you don't want to be there (laughs) for 10 hours. Um, But you have to, for instance, keep the screen on. Like you can't let the computer go to sleep or else it doesn't start any new runs. Mm. Um, The instrument has to be completely reset if the power goes out so it's on a backup breaker. Um, We have everything is backed up (laughs) 
to the max. Like we have <laughs> extra battery packs, we have all of this stuff. But so it basically means that our computer is on all the time. Our instruments are usually on like at least a standby mode. We rarely turn them completely off. We have fume hoods running constantly. We have like general ventilation and things. And then when we are using fume hoods, the lights are on. Um, and there are all these other backup systems in place throughout the building. Mm-hmm. So there's always just like the power and like mechanical rooms in Druk are huge because there's so many things that need to be accounted for. And fortunately in teaching labs, they turn the hoods off when people aren't in there. So the hoods are only on for like five hours a day versus in the research lab where it's 24 Mm seven. So that's good. Like people are generally cognizant of that, but there's again, like this idea that there's only so much you can do with our current technology to actually reduce the usage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of like in comparison, a lot of humanities research is like you need a computer and like some teaching space and like maybe a couple, I don't know, like some transportation, but it's not like science research doesn't require transportation either. But right. I, I don't know, it's just like kind of wild to yeah. think about like what sort of materials you're using yeah. um, to sort of like build knowledge. To put energy usage in perspective, on average in 2019, Drek used 189,360 kilowatt hours per month. Adams Hall, in comparison, a modern humanities building equipped with an elevator and updated ventilation and heating, used an average of 12,744 kilowatt hours per month for 2019. And the infrastructure thing, I think, poses a very unique set of problems or things you have to work around when thinking about environmentalism and sustainability. And, like, the physical footprint, right, of, like, Druk is huge yeah. and houses a couple of departments, whereas, like, all of the language departments can fit in SILs, and that's just because the professors need offices. Mm-hmm. There's really not that much more. Um, but also, there's a huge discrepancy in funding that I know that a lot of humanities professors feel, mm. um, and that money is being, I mean, being put to pretty effective use, and a lot of it comes from outside sources, like the NSF and things like that. But currently, I don't think Bowdoin is really investing in green infrastructure in Druckenmiller. Mm-hmm. Their kind of band-aid solution, from my perspective, um, was to build Rue and say, like, great, this is a lead platinum lab building. Yeah, <laughs> but there's, like, not a lot of chemistry happening there. Like, chemistry even in, like, a geological or biological context, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's just the research that they do there doesn't require hoods. That doesn't mean that the research is any less like legit. It just means that they're using fewer toxic chemicals. Mm-hmm. And so it's easier to say like, great, we have this, you know, lead platinum, but a geology lab doesn't have hoods usually. You know, the teaching labs are just desktops. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yes, like it's great that Bowden thought about how to design that and took on that challenge but it also isn't something that is going to have an impact on Druckenmiller at the moment yeah I mean like Druck is still here (laughs) Druck is still there and if you think about the hundreds of instruments that are on all the time and or just running you know things have to run overnight all the time I don't know if you've ever pulled a vacuum on a reaction in intro or anything but that means leaving the water running full tilt for hours so when I'm doing a synthesis I have the tap going the entire time 
um, and things like that. So the, the water usage, even if you're not using water as a solvent, we would never put any of our compounds into water. But we use, I don't even know how many thousands of gallons to make them because we need a vacuum. And so there are some people that use vacuum pumps, but that's electricity. You know, there's, <laughs> there's always, there's usually an alternative, but it's usually not great for the environment. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what do you mean exactly by using water for like making a vacuum? Is it like, I'm a little confused. Yeah, so this is something that um, you probably don't ever bump into. <laughs> but uh, so we have these things called, like for, in our case, they're called manifolds. And they look kind of like caterpillars. They're these, they're about a foot long and they're plastic. And then they have ports on top. And so we can put our synthesis vessels into the ports. Mm -hmm. And then um, because we're making this polymer, it's very stepwise. So it's really fast if you have a vacuum, pull the solution out. Because we have, okay. mm -hmm. we basically create our compounds on these beads. And then the beads stay above the filter and the solution drains out. Mm -hmm. So we can constantly add new solutions. And then gotcha. at the end, we have this procedure to remove the desired compound from the bead. So every like two to five minutes, we need to um, use a vacuum to remove two mils of solution. And that takes forever with a gravitational filter. But with a vacuum, it just goes like, it's like less than a second. Hmm. And so we hook up this manifold to, like if you think about the water coming out of a faucet, there's basically just like a port on the side. And so, all of the air gets sucked out mm. via the faucet. And so we mm. hook up our manifold to this other part of the faucet and it removes all of the air and that creates a vacuum. So our hazardous waste is collected inside of the manifold. Huh. It doesn't get sent down the drain, but that's the most effective way for us to generate a vacuum. And they do that in organic lab too, whenever you're filtering something, because mm. it's a really fast and easy way to make a vacuum. And it's really cheap if you have like 30 students in a lab, but that means that there are thousands <coughs> of gallons of water going into making every molecule, like five milligrams of something. Yeah. Hmm. So the scale can oh. be pretty intense. And like, <laughs> yeah. I grew up in a household, like my dad is from Colorado and gets upset when we take long showers. I, I don't use zero water outside of lab, and then I go to lab and I'm like, all right, faucet on, nine hours. That's so again, like that whole idea of reconciliation is really tough. It seems like, all right, so there's the like roadblock with infrastructure and footprint. Can you speak to like general mentality around this sort of thing? We've talked a little bit, a bit about like um, the challenges of, the greening labs in general mm -hmm. and I don't know if you can help me out th with this question yeah but yeah I guess just like I don't know for, for me at least I feel like when I I'm a biology major so I do spend a little bit of time like doing science whatever that means <laughs> um but I feel like there's a general body of people who are like in academia who are like exchanging about their research but also like general practices and that kind of stuff like I'm wondering if 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 there's room to sort of like push the bar forward, if there's room to like, sort of like leveraging the power of a, a whole professional group, I guess. Yeah, so there, um, 
is kind of an overarching body to chemistry in America, it's the American Chemical Society. They run um, the most prestigious chemical journal in the world um, and run all kinds of programs. So the ACS is kind of like the go-to chemical body. Mm-hmm. And um, they have things like the Green Chemistry Awards, they have Green Chemistry Conferences. It's definitely a conversation, but it's not something that you have to be involved in. So um, there are, and a lot of the green chemistry conversations are happening in industry because that's where, like, if you're making mm-hmm. one thing in academia, like, okay, maybe you're making 10 grams of it. Mm-hmm. That would be huge. <laughs> um, like, our lab doesn't ever make more than, like, 100 milligrams of something at a time. But if you're making something in industry, like, if you think about something like... Um, Viagra, which is one that comes up a lot mm-hmm. because it's one of the largest grossing drugs in the U.S., so people like talking about it and mentioning it in all of their papers. Um, <laughs> like, if you're making Viagra, that's happening on a huge scale, right? Like, you have to send Viagra to, like, every state, and, like, if you make something in a research lab, probably no one else is going to use mm-hmm. that. Um, so that's just like the question of scale and efficiency that industry is really focusing on that maybe research labs are not. But there is definitely a trend. Um, I guess one of the other things that's cool, um, like the UN sustainability um, tenants, there is a similar, like there's an analogous set of tenants for green chemistry that Sigma Aldrich, which is a huge chemical company developed. And so there are 12 principles for green chemistry. And you can take a quiz and see how green your lab is. But there are a lot of things that are that make sense. Like the first one is like prevention. It's better to prevent waste than to clean up and treat it. And that makes sense. And that's how like a lot of environmental things are treated in like a day-to-day mm-hmm. sense. But other things like atom economy, like that means that you are being as efficient with every atom. And so making products that utilize fewer atoms along the way that don't end up in the product. Like that's not something that's ever really that useful. Like if you're thinking about like broad scale environmental movements, like mm-hmm. atom economy is not going to be one of them. But that's also <laughs> like really simple like similar to the life cycle analysis. Uh-huh. So there are definitely movements like that, but then something that I so I took a seminar on organometallics which are organic compounds that contain a metal. And they're super common in um, catalysis and have a bunch of, so like the industrial production of um, like acetic acid uses a um, palladium catalyst, I believe. But things like that where people are looking at using different elements to achieve the same goal. So if you could use Mm. iron instead of palladium, Um, Palladium is really expensive, it's fairly toxic, and it's really rare, versus iron is like the most abundant and stable element, but that makes it really inactive towards catalysis. So people are shifting their research. So their research is finding an alternative that, so inherently what they're doing is environmental, even if they don't label themselves as an environmental lab. Mm. Um, So they're kind of walking the line of moving their research in a direction that could have a big impact on industrial scale syntheses and things but it's again it's so hard to find (laughs) the environmentalism in a like traditional chemistry lab yeah 
Yeah, I'm taking this ecotoxicology class right now, and um, one of the things that we've been like reading a couple of papers, and and a lot of them are sort of basically like let's take this organism let's expose it to this like pesticide or other compound and like see what happens um and it's just kind of interesting like i find it like i think it's important to understand like you know ecosystem impacts of things that we're using in the environment but it's just kind of um i don't know there's like a certain irony to like using the specific compound that you're like probably trying to advocate for like less usage um, in your science lab and like creating more of it, or like creating a smaller scale use but like still a use um, I don't th- and like kind of it's kind of getting at what you're saying where there's like not really a good I don't know like there's no good alternative to like well we need to use the thing to find out how to use the thing right um, and also there's this whole like mindset in chemistry of um, I mean, there's a lot of ego involved um, <laughs> as there is with all science um, but with chemistry there's this history of what's called total synthesis. And now labs aren't getting as much funding for it because it's so rooted in this toxically masculine culture that large funding agencies are really hesitant to perpetuate it. Um, what, do you, what do you mean by total so synthesis? So total synthesis just means that you go out and make something because you can. You make this cool new <laughs> molecule that no one else has ever seen before and it doesn't necessarily have an application. Um, mm. And that mindset is not entirely gone. I mean, it's intrinsically cool to say that you've made a molecule no one else has made, right? Like, that's, <laughs> that's like objectively something interesting. Like, in any discipline to have made something no one else has is really interesting and is really alluring, I think, for a yeah. lot of people. It's a good resume builder. <laughs> Excellent resume builder, right? Like, it's so, it, that's such an interesting thing to be able to say. Um, but there's also this idea of chemists think that their work is very important, which everyone should believe that their work is very important, but I think in a lot of scientific disciplines, there's this idea of the hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, where like physicists believe that <laughs> oh their work God. is more important than chemists, who believe that their work is more important than biologists. That is, I think, an intrinsic hierarchy, not intrinsic, it's a, it's a perceived hierarchy that a lot of people feel, and so I think a lot of chemists are really hesitant to give up their work for environmental principles because they believe that it's really important. And at this point in the way that academia and research has evolved, people are ultimately making things that can have an impact and like go directly into industry. I met someone last week who made a new um, F-18 labeled radio tracer, right? He's gonna market that and will be able to sell it to imaging companies for things like PET scans right away. It's ready to go. But then there are a lot of labs where what they're doing has upstream or even downstream applications in industry or medicine or environmentalism or agriculture or whatever. But that's not why they're doing it on the day to day. That's why they get funding for it. Hmm. And I think that means that chemists feel like their work is a little bit more isolated. Whereas in fields like ecology, people see environmental impacts every day when you're an ecologist, right? And like what you're studying and that's, it's an unavoidable thing in ecology and a lot of biology. But in chemistry, people can kind of ignore that. And I think that's sort of a privilege that being holed up in a lab has. Mm -hmm. You don't ever really have to face what's happening outside as long as you get funding for your project. And that's a really, really cynical view of chemistry. (laughs) Um, But I also think that there's a lot of truth to that. 
and that that's one of those things that I mean we see those kind of patterns every day in environmentalism like if you don't face the consequences of your actions you don't have to change them unless you feel moral imperative too (laughs) and I don't think that a lot of chemists you also get backed into a hole kind of of like if you have established a lab at an R1 institution you cannot just go to the department head and say all right our project's killing the environment I think we should do this other thing like you are there and you are tenured to do the research you are doing Mm. So there's not a lot of room for flexibility in academia, and then industry is focused on pharmaceuticals, agriculture, and like medicinal chemistry. There's not a lot of, like there's a lot of environmental chemistry happening, but it's it's kind of not as high profile as one would hope, and it's sort mm-hmm. of looked down on from a lot of other areas of chemistry. Yeah. There's a lot of ego involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it's still a lot of good things. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is the part of, of environmentalism in my life that I feel the most depressed about. Because, oh, <laughs> no. damn, you well, really got me down, honestly. <laughs> I mean, like, I think it's a fair thing it's to a, consider, right. and, like, it's like, a good conversation to have. <laughs> it's just, it's just really, it's really hard to reconcile the idea that my, like, core principles as a human who wants to save the planet and be a contributing member of a society that's moving towards sustainability like do you know will I eventually go into a lab that is able to make a sustainable alternative to plastic that would be amazing I would love to do that like to use polylactic acid that we were talking about earlier to make something that means that we don't have to use polypropylene or polyethylene for something like that would be great but I don't know, my chosen career path that I've wanted to do for years, like I've known for a long time that I've wanted a PhD in this, but I've also known for a long time that I care about the planet and trying to reconcile the environmental impact that my actions in lab have is a lot more difficult than trying to reconcile the actions that my impact as like a human on a day-to-day scale has. Yeah, yeah, because I feel like a lot of that is, I don't know, on some level it's also like, it's like soup and not to be like oh it's not on you like it's not like there is like I mean there is a certain part of responsibility that everyone holds but like part of it is also just like very deeply systemic and like right um and I think about who works for the sustainability office like there aren't a lot of like chemists mathematicians and physicists in there yeah yeah and that's fine (laughs) on one hand but on the other hand it's like I think that just more reflects on what people study when they're deeply passionate about the planet and it doesn't tend to be certain subjects like just the way that that trends Mm -hmm. so you don't and I don't know a lot of like mathematicians do end up like going to work on projects that are doing climate modeling and things like that same with physicists yeah but I think it's a lot of people who spend a lot more time thinking not quite so or trying to think less objectively than mm. scientists always try to think yeah even though there's no objectivity yeah um, do you think like on some level though that we'll be able to reach like just like more energy efficient technology or is it like a just beyond just energy efficiency um i think there is there's always a movement towards 
developing more sustainable technology, but I think the other challenge is like a lot of the technology that chemists and other scientists use is very specific. Uh, like I mentioned in HPLC, that's yeah. really common in chemistry, but there are only about two brands that yeah. make it. And so chemists are going to buy it regardless. Mm. There's not, <laughs> there's you not, know, there's not energy star for <laughs> yeah. equipment um, because there are not enough options. Like you can look at them and say like, okay, this one's more environmentally friendly, but if it doesn't do the job, we're not going to buy it. Yeah. So that's, I mean, yes, I think that people are trying to make more environmentally friendly technology but I think you're also backed up against a lot of like capitalist tendencies and limitations yeah and also like other pressures beyond just like we're trying to make enviro technology exactly there's a primary use I guess (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah. well as the black sheep in the chemistry department (laughs) um a question that we often start or finish off with um what does sustainability mean to you so I think I have different answers for this depending on whether or not I'm wearing my chemist or my <laughs> normal person hat. And I feel like on a normal person level, I feel like sustainability, I mean, ascribing to the, the more objective definition of like being able to use something within the resources available and their regenerative capacity, but also as like a human feeling a sense of, of moral commitment to working towards a more sustainable planet and like that attitude is really important. Um, As a chemist, sustainability means um, maximizing the use of things like green solvents and being as efficient with your chemicals as possible um, and ascribing to best practices while still being safe. But um, really that means solvents to me like that that is what it comes down to like if you can avoid using heavy metals and if you can use water like that's the that's what immediately springs to mind i think cool with that thank you so much kate yeah thank you for giving me a platform to rant about sustainability (laughs) this thing that sits on my mind That was Kate Toll talking about sustainability in a scientific lab setting. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBOR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. Each episode featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members will be available after the show here on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu sustainability under the green tea tab. There, you can also find show notes and description of past episodes. And we're currently looking for new stories to share through the Green Tea Podcast. If you've done work within the environmental realm or believe what you do for pleasure or business touches on the themes addressed within this podcast, please email Marie at mscaspar at bowden.edu. That's m-s-c-a-s-p-a-r at bowden.edu to get in touch. The music you heard in this episode is courtesy of Colby Santana of The Sustainers, who we interview in the last episode of Season 1. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.